Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Heath Scheckinger. He is a counseling psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and he also maintains a private practice. Heath is the founding co-chair of the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy within Division 44 of the American Psychological Association, and he is the co-founder of the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. We're going to be talking all about polyamory today. We'll be exploring questions such as who is into polyamory and why, what polyamorous relationships actually look like, what it means to practice solo polyamory, and common issues that come up in therapy with polyamorous clients. We'll also talk about Heath's advocacy work and how it's shifting the conversations that we're having around consensual non-monogamy. Additionally, we'll talk about the future of polyamory. So, for example, will we eventually have legal recognition of polyamorous relationships throughout the country and around the world? I'm so excited for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Heath, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, Justin. It's good to be here. It's good to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining me for my first in-person podcast interview. We are coming to you from Heath's bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) That's also another first. I don't usually record my podcast in the bedroom, but we are in beautiful Northern California, just looking out the window at all these amazing trees and the swimming pool outside and just ready to power through this so we can go take a dip. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit first about your professional journey, because you have had kind of an interesting career transition. For example, you're somebody who was initially going to become a minister, and now you're a psychologist, therapist, researcher in the area of consensual non-monogamy, who does this advocacy work. So can you tell us a little bit about how you made that shift? How did you get there? How did you make that transition? I think it's it's something that hopefully or I think people might connect with in that sense of being someone that's a spiritual person or has this background in spirituality or really committed to wanting to live a life that is highly ethical or really attuned to other people. I was on my path. I was on this journey to become a minister. I love supporting people and still love supporting people. That theme is the same. And into my master's program in ministry, I ended up falling in love with my best guy friend, which certainly shifted my paradigm or changed things for me. And it prompted me to step back and explore my journey. And eventually I ended up in at the University of Kansas and was actually there to pursue my PhD and wanted to focus on the intersection of sexuality and spirituality because that was a big part of my journey. And in that process, I eventually ended up getting into a relationship with a woman, but still didn't feel like I was finished with wanting to explore my sexuality and the parts of me that were curious about men. And I happened to have a roommate who was a sex researcher, and he suggested books such as Sex at Dawn, um, Mating in Captivity, Opening Up, Ethical Slut. And they really provided this framework for me to understand my experience. It really expanded my perception of this concept of are we all monogamous or should we be monogamous? And it cultivated my curiosity with that question of like, why aren't we asking about this? And even as a scientist, right? Like, why aren't we asking about this? Why are we assuming that everyone is or should be 
monogamous? Why is this not on our demographic forms? Why is this something that even when I bring up with my very liberal friends and progressive friends that it's so taboo or that it brings up this reaction? I remember talking with my advisor about this and she was like, wow, this feels like talking about LGBT issues in the 1970s, right? Or late 1960s or 1970s. And she was very gracious and supportive. And despite it wasn't her area of expertise, and I know she's okay with me sharing this, that that she was a prominent psychologist and her husband was also a psychologist and ended up coming out as gay, but it wasn't safe for them to come out in that way. So they functionally had a non-monogamous relationship where they stayed together, they raised their kids, he dated men, she dated other men, right? And they developed other partners and they essentially functioned as this family, this queer, I don't know what terms or labels they adjusted because they didn't have the terms that we do now, but they functionally lived that way. And she was like, oh, Heath, yes, you absolutely have to research this and go down this track. And she talked about how, you know, you've potentially committed career suicide. So as long as you are okay embracing that risk and that this is something that is just uncharted and is very stigmatized and is something that might keep you from getting jobs in tier one academic institutions, as long as you're okay with that, then yes. I fully support you and I want to support you in that journey. Thank you for sharing that. It's a fascinating story and it's it's reminding me of lots of things. You know, I had Elizabeth Sheff on the podcast a while back. She studies polyamory and you know, when she started doing work in this area, she was one of the only people in North America doing it and everybody told her the same thing. She's committing career suicide and you know, people who study this topic, who speak out about it, often are marginalized, even within the field of psychology, which people tend to think of as being a pretty left-leaning, pretty progressive, pretty liberal field. So it's, you know, fascinating that you have topics like this that are considered off-limits. And graduate students usually don't have that experience you do. You know, they're usually steered away from studying controversial right. topics like that. Right. Yeah. And it goes a lot to say about my advisor and her willingness to support me in pursuing this venture that was outside of her wheelhouse. So it meant additional work for her and gathering information and reading studies. There were very few at that time, I suppose. But yeah, it was it was a risk. And I certainly didn't see it going the direction that it did. I felt very fortunate that it did. It felt a little bit like maybe investing in a stock market at the right time because there's certainly been some things that have really shifted in our culture and our awareness and perceptions and acceptance of consensual non-monogamy and polyamory. But yeah, it was a risk and I very much felt isolated, especially being in Kansas, focusing on this topic. But it just, it felt right. And I think it, it speaks to the parts of me that, uh, going back to the, that wanted to be a minister, that it's like, it doesn't matter that I saw how people were being marginalized and being oppressed and stigmatized. And that just didn't seem right. And the part of me that identifies as a social justice advocate, really, I felt like my sense of justice is really what drove me to pursue this topic and this work further. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your work in this area. So let's discuss polyamory, which, you know, I think most people listening, probably if you've been following the podcast for a while, you know what polyamory is. But if you're new to it, what we're talking about here is essentially a relationship structure or philosophy, or some might even call it an orientation in which all the partners involved mutually consent that it's okay to have more than one sexual and or romantic partner at the same time. So as a starting point, can you tell us, Heath, a little bit about what polyamory 
looks like. So specifically, you know, what are some examples of the shapes that these relationships might take? <laughs> you know, if you were to think about drawing them like geometrically, right. what might they look like? Oh, and the W, X, Z. I mean, there's so many different letters and configurations that it it's really difficult to create a sense of consistency or coherent model as a researcher. It's a little bit frustrating trying to figure that out or to develop these clear and coherent narratives about what polyamory is and what it isn't. It's similar to, you know, even as we try to, like, what does it mean to be queer or what does it mean to be trans or what does it mean to be gender nonconforming, right? That it's, it's, it's biopsychosocial, right? Or that there's this aspect of identity doesn't have to match behavior, right? Like you have those people that might be functionally polyamorous or functionally behaviorally acting uh, non-monogamous. There's like, you might have people that are functionally bisexual or um, that don't identify as bisexual, right? So it's difficult to really map out what it looks like. What we do know is that this population is large and it is growing and it is very diverse, right? So we know that four to five percent of people, which is about one in 20, currently are in or identify as being part of a consensually non-monogamous relationship. We know that one out of five people, about 20%, have engaged in some form of consensual non-monogamy at some point in their life. So we like to joke about how that's as common as owning a house cat, right? It is incredibly common. And we also know that there's about one in eight people that identify as consensual non-monogamy as being their ideal Right? So there's a lot of people out there that would want to be in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, which is interesting for the future to see where it goes. And also with Gen Z being so much more queer, I anticipate it'll follow, follow trends that we see with the LGBT community as well, where it just continues to increase in its prevalence. But we also know that the polyamorous community or the CNM community is really diverse. So there's been these nationally representative samples that looked at, okay, who are the consensual non-monogamous community. And the only predictive variables in terms of demographics are gender and sexual orientation, right? So men are slightly, just slightly, right? Because there's a lot of stereotypes and stigma about it being men that are pushing this, but that is absolutely not true. And sexual orientation. We know that queer folks are much more likely to identify as polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous. But the interesting thing is race is not predictive, right? I think we have this perception that polyamory is all about like these white, privileged, educated people that are doing it, but it's it's not necessarily the case. Like when you collectively capture the diversity of the consensual non-monogamous community, which includes swinging and open relationships, etc., the race is not predictive, right? As well as religion. This is what really surprised me, that religion is not predictive. Granted, uh, swingers tend to identify as more Christians and be more conservative than polyamorous, but within the CNM community as large, it is not predictive, as well as political affiliation, right? So this is not partisan. So there's as many Democrats as there are Republicans that identify as consensual non-monogamous. So there's really this opportunity. I'm really curious to see where things go further because similar to the queer community where you have people nested within populations, we know one of the strongest predictors of people being more affirming of a certain marginal identity is having connection, a personal connection with people. So I'm really curious to see as consensual non-monogamy becomes more popular where things go in the future because CNM folks are so nested within all communities. Yeah. And you said a lot of important things there. And so one of them is that a lot of people's stereotypes about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy just aren't accurate, where they think that it's the white 
wealthy, liberal, educated. And I published a study a few years ago. Rhonda Balzarini was my co-author on that. She was the first author. And we looked at the demography of polyamory. And we surveyed thousands of people who identify as polyamorous and just found they're an incredibly diverse community. Yes, right. Yeah. And so people's expectations, their stereotypes just don't seem to match up with the reality, which I think is interesting in and of itself. Rhonda and I and some other work that we've done, we've also asked people to, you know, describe the shape of their polyamorous relationship. And what you see is that there's not just one predominant variation that it looks like. So we, we find that the most common variation is what's called a V where you've got one person who has two other partners, but those two other partners are not in a relationship with each other. But you can also have triads, you know, where it's a triangle. All the angles are connected. You can have a rectangle. You can have... <laughs> Anything. Any geometric the, shape. Yes, yes. It's like our capacity for love may not, may be infinite or unlimited, but our time and energy resources aren't. So in some ways we are limited to where it's like, okay, the idea of someone having 20 really fulfilling relationships is not practical, yeah. right? But two or three, understandably, that is going to be more what it's like. And they might invest more energy into one or two of those relationships than others, right? So there's still going to be these similarities that you see to monogamous relationships, but there's also going to be some unique aspects, but there are some limitations just because we have limited time and resources. Yeah. And yeah, and within some of these relationships, it might be that one partner is more primary than the other partner. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an example, like I think the most interesting description I've seen of, you know, what a polyamorous relationship looks like, one of our participants described their relationship as, think of it as an asterisk with a rectangle bolted onto it. <laughs> so just imagine that for a second and try and figure out, you know, what that means for how the relationship looks. So it's really interesting. These relationships are very dynamic and they don't, conform to one specific thing. Right. And what I've loved to see too, is even in the work that we've been doing around just having conversations about what are the needs of the polyamorous community and seeing how diverse it is, we've been finding so many allies in spaces that we anticipated, but also some that we didn't, right? Non-traditional families, single parents, step families, this idea of chosen family, queer families, the asexual community, right? Someone that maybe doesn't experience sexual attraction, but wants their partner to have that need fulfilled. And you want to have consistency and commitment in a relationship, right? Just it, 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 the thing that's so beautiful about it is that it, it feels very much like there's this collection and in truly polyamory, non-exclusive form, there's this sense of, hey, let's come together and let's have a conversation and let's try to promote this sense of inclusion in this work to expand our conceptualization of love and family. Yeah. So there are so many fascinating and interesting intersections between polyamory and so many different identities that people might have. And since we're talking about the structure of polyamory, something I wanted to address for a moment was this idea of what's called solo polyamory, mm -hmm. in which somebody has multiple intimate partnerships, but it might appear as though they're single. You know, from the outside, it might look right. like they're right. a single individual. And, you know, none of their relationships are necessarily more primary than the others. They don't follow the traditional relationship milestones yeah. right. where the relationship escalates over time, becomes more intimate or invested. So, you know, when I think about solo polyamory, you know, in some ways, 
it doesn't seem hierarchical because they're not treating any of their relationship partners as primary, but it also seems hierarchical in the sense that you're treating the relationship with yourself <laughs> as yeah. the primary relationship that you yeah, have. Yeah, that's that's that tends to be a consistent theme within my understanding of the solo polyamory. I think it's important to have caveats that it's hard to make broad generalizations, yes. right? It's important to really appreciate the uniqueness of the individual and what their terms are and what they're advocating for and what it means to them. But when we try to talk about it more broadly and try to, as researchers, create definitions, et cetera, yeah, that, that it's it's when someone who has multiple intimate relationships or might identify as non-monogamous, but has more of an independent or single-looking lifestyle. They may not live with partners, they may not share finances, uh, or have a desire to reach those traditional relationship milestones in, in which partners' lives become more intertwined, right? Maybe it's it's folks that have, uh, again, we're just in the nascent stages of research, so we don't really know, right? So we're speculating here. But perhaps people with high autonomy needs, or maybe a busy lifestyle, or they travel a lot. But the thing that I think matters most just like with anything, with hierarchical polyamory or non-hierarchical polyamory or solo polyamory, informed consent is key, right? The important thing, I think, in any relationship is being honest and upfront about what you're available for. And when people know that information, right, that's when it becomes ethical, right? Is that, hey, this is what I'm available for. I want to be very clear and as, as clear as I can be. And if that's okay with you, then I'm happy to engage with you. Right. And, and that can take some work. And I think there's a lot of contextual variables that predict whether that's a good fit, right? Like maybe I would anticipate people that are in solo polyamorous relationships might be a good fit for people who also already have a, maybe an anchor or primary or nesting partner, right? So they're not, because we all have needs, right? And so like there can be this gravitas towards wanting more if maybe you don't have a anchor or primary partner, right? So there's, there's things like that, that I think might be predictive, but but yes, and I think also solo polyamory can get a bad rap sometimes about being more selfish, but I think that it can be so beautiful, right? When people just really name what their needs are, I think that can be so beautiful and I fully support the solo polyamory community. Yeah, and my reason for bringing it up and mentioning it is just that it's yet another example of how polyamory doesn't conform to one set of expectations. It doesn't have this consistent appearance from one person to the next. And so ultimately, it, it's customizable to meet the needs yeah. of the individuals involved. And as long as it's all consensual. And exactly. It just gives people more options in their tool belt, yeah. right? And we're just starting to create these models to, I think it's just, we're creating terms and models to capture the diversity of the human experience. We're just moving out of this really one size fits all model and more creating space for people just to embrace who they are. And we're now trying to retrofit like, okay, this, this term kind of fits what that is. But I think it's, it's beautiful that we're moving in that direction. Um, just like not everyone is straight, not everyone is cis, uh, right? So it's, it's, it's a matter of we're, we're, we're finally getting to the place where we're finally starting to focus on relationship status and relationship orientation or relationship diversity and, and creating these models for people to have more acceptance around who they are. So let's talk for a little bit about the benefits of polyamory. So what are the unique benefits of polyamory over, say, monogamy? And what are the unique benefits of monogamy over polyamory? Right. Great question. I'm sure you're referencing the study that uh, Amy Moores, my uh, good friend and co-chair, we just celebrated 10 years of friendship. Shout out to Amy and Jess Matzik. A couple of years ago, we just asked people, hey, what are the benefits of consensual non-monogamy? And hey, what are the benefits? And we compared that to responses to the benefits of monogamy. 
And we just analyze that. And there are some unique benefits of each, but overall, I think the big theme was that there's more similarities than differences, right? That at the end of the day, people are people and people want support and they want love and they want commitment and they want healthy communication. They want trust. They want a sense of family and love and healthy sex, right? Like those are the consistent shared themes. What they look like were different, right? Like non-monogamous folks wanted, uh, when they said community and family, they were talking about chosen family versus monogamous folks tend to talk about the traditional perspective of family. When it comes to sex, folks in monogamous, everyone wants healthy sex life, right? Folks in monogamous relationships tend to emphasize the benefits being comfort, consistency, not worries, not having to worry or stress versus people in non-monogamous tend to focus on variety or experimentation or better or more frequent sex or novelty versus when it comes to commitment, people in monogamous relationships, emotional security, dependable, uh, consistency, non-monogamous folks, similar, but can depend on multiple people right? So there's, there's, it's like there's support in redundancy or having more than one person to meet my needs, right? So it's all, we're going for some similar things. And where we saw the unique aspects was that monogamy holds privilege in terms of this, well, one, it's, it's, it's a perception of health or in, and your research actually has nullified or, or challenged this perception. It is a myth, but there's this perception that I'm, I'm sexually more safe uh, in terms of STIs. If I'm in a monogamous relationship, we know your research has, uh, you know, contradicted that or challenged that because folks uh, cheat a lot, right? As we know, and we, we um, know that the non-monogamous community on average tends to use safer sex practices, gets tested, communicates more openly, et cetera. And that, that kind of nullifies some of the, the differences. But also the other unique benefit of monogamy was morality or this perception that there's God's will or there's this religious or moral acceptance. And that is a privilege because it is more socially acceptable. You don't have to defend yourself defaultly to your family if you're talking about being monogamous. You don't have to come out as monogamous to your family, right? So that that is a benefit that um, monogamy uniquely holds. In terms of the unique benefits that we found for non-monogamous folks is diversified need fulfillment, right? There's more people to meet your needs. You're not having all of your eggs, let's say, in one basket. People also talked about activity variety, so non-sexual variety. More people that you can engage with, engage in activities, um, and and go out and have dates, and and just uh, kind of exploring yourself, and and you're doing more interesting or different things. There was also this component that I thought was really interesting around personal growth or development. So folks in non-monogamous relationships talk about how it really prompted them to get in touch with themselves. And I think a lot of this is that there's this paradigm or this perspective around compersion that is unique to non-monogamy, right? As a, as a, a contrast to jealousy. So it's the opposite of jealousy, if you will. And this was the part that really drew me to non-monogamy as well as a spiritual person, that this just seemed to make sense, right? That I want to orient towards really supporting my partner's needs in a non-judgmental way. So people talk about how non-monogamy really cultivates this sense of personal growth and development. And then the other piece was that it provided more autonomy or freedom. That's the fourth unique benefit, that it's the ability, it's just a, a broader sense of trust and more openness towards really maybe honoring our partner's autonomy needs so that you can go out and explore connections or maybe ex explore your identity in terms of uh, if you're queer or bi, it, it provides a safe space for you. You can still be in the context of a relationship and explore that aspect of your identity. Yeah. So 
it sounds like there's lots of commonalities and what draws people to relationships, regardless of whether they're monogamous or consensually non-monogamous. But there are some unique things that people get out of each relationship structure. And I just wanted to add a little bit more to what you mentioned about the perceived health benefits of monogamy, right? So in theory, you know, if you are perfectly monogamous with your partner and your partner is perfectly monogamous mm -hmm. with you, yeah, there shouldn't be any risk of STDs coming into the equation. It's just that in reality, people don't always practice monogamy in the way that they agreed to with their partner. You know, we know, for example, that about one in four to one in five married couples have sex with someone other than their partner at some point during the course of their relationship. And, you know, we're talking about monogamous married people, right? So, you know, cheating is common. And when cheating happens, it's usually not a planned behavior. It's spontaneous. And so they didn't bring condoms because, you know, they were on a work trip and they were drunk at a bar and a hotel and met somebody and it just kind of happened. And then they go home and they don't get tested and they don't tell their partner about it. And so it creates that opportunity for, you know, infidelity to be this really high risk behavior because there's no safe sex occurring in, in a majority of those cases. And then there's no follow up, no communication with the partner. And actually getting an STD is how a lot of cases of infidelity are actually discovered. Right. It's reminding me of Terry Conley's work around challenging the concept of even within a healthcare setting of do we test people? What questions do we ask when someone comes in? If he identifies monogamous, right, does it become then unethical to not test them for STIs when they come and see their doctor, for example, right? And, and how monogamy can be this protective fallacy and can paradoxically put people more at risk if we're not testing them, right? And should we just routinely be testing people for STIs and creating more access? A lot of the, the things that the non-monogamy community advocates for is just making it easier for people to get STI testing and removing the barriers to getting STI testing because monogamy paradoxically is a protective fallacy and ends up can be harmful as a standard of practice. And so one of the things that we're advocating for in medical settings is that routine testing and giving people more free and, and accessible testing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I interviewed a physician on the podcast a, a few episodes back, Dr. Mike Moreno, and we talked about how physicians often make the assumption that if they have a client who is married, a patient who's married, they assume that they're necessarily monogamous and so they just don't even offer STI testing. Right. They don't bring up sex at all um, because it's just not something that they, they think about because they have these expectations, these stereotypes that they're putting on to the monogamous patients. So, you know, that's something else that we need to work on going forward in terms of providing people with better health care. Yeah. And you don't want to offend someone. Yeah. And that's why a lot of doctors just don't ask. And a lot of doctors just aren't comfortable talking about sex, but that's a whole other issue and a whole other <laughs> podcast. Right. So we have much more to discuss, including common issues that come up in sex therapy with polyamorous patients. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. 
Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is psychologist Dr. Heath Schechinger. So, Heath, let's say you're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship mm-hmm. and you're experiencing some difficulty in that relationship. How would you recommend somebody goes about finding a counselor or therapist who can assist them in working through their issues? So, can you just find any psychologist and, you know, assume that they have the skill set to help you or do you have to look for somebody with specialty training? Yeah, you, I think you really have to try to find someone who has specialty training. I think it's it's a myth. Or it would be wonderful if therapists were routinely trained on supporting the consensual non-monogamous population, but that is just not the case, right? It, you're you're prompting me. Um, I'm thinking about how we'll talk a little bit about my work with the committee on consensual non-monogamy. But one of the big successes or wins that we had was pursuing and reaching out to Psychology Today as well as the APA Psychologist Locator about adding consensual non-monogamy to their therapist directory, right? Because in a study that Dr. Moores and Dr. John Sakaluk and I did years ago, we found that there's a large number of people, one-fifth of the people in our study that we asked about experiences with consensual non-monogamous therapy clients that indicated that their therapist lacked the basic knowledge of CNM to be necessary to be an effective therapist, Right. So one in five. And this is of a group that half specifically looked for a therapist. But clearly people are having difficulty finding a therapist who has the education and training because we're currently not training therapists on this topic. Right. So that is a what we see as a big barrier to as the field is still onboarding in terms of understanding this need and trying to support this need that we need to find and, and remove those barriers to accessing culturally competent healthcare. And so we saw it as a big win that um, uh, Psychology Today eventually agreed to add open relationships or non-monogamy as well. Actually, we were advocating for kink identified, the therapists who support uh, kink and BDSM. And so it's still not part of their search criteria. They have different tiers. I learned a ton. I spent well over 100 hours in my life dedicated to this project trying to get them to add it. Or you can just do a Google search. Or the easiest way is maybe go to my website or you can Google search Psychology Today open relationship therapist and it'll take you to this tool. They've added this search box where you can search by your zip code, but it's not super easy to find. We're still working on it, right? It just really highlights some of the stigma and marginalization that still exists towards this community. It's starting to get better, but we are still so far off in terms of where we need to be in terms of advocating for people getting culturally competent care. Yeah. Sounds like there's still a ways to go, but we appreciate your <laughs> efforts to, to try and make it easier for people to find a therapist who has some knowledge and understanding in this area. And I know from my own experience working in academia for more than a decade and training a lot of graduate students, you know, consensual non-monogamy just wasn't a topic that was often talked about or discussed. You know, in my last academic job, this was in a counseling psychology PhD program. We had one course in the entire curriculum on sex and relationships. (laughs) You know, it was mostly about dealing with issues that come up in monogamous marriages. So, you know, how can you expect everybody to learn everything they need to know in the context of that single course? And 
that's why I think a lot of organizations like, say, the Sexual Health Alliance and so forth will have certification programs so that sex therapists, relationship therapists can go get the additional training they need that they didn't get in grad school. Yep. And that's what we're still doing is even creating certifications, right? Or supporting creating certifications or another big project that we're focusing on right now with the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy is working with large organizations. One that we're starting conversations with is the Human Rights Campaign and they have the Corporate Equity Index and the Healthcare Equity Index. And eventually we would like to see ethical non-monogamy added to that index so that we're educating folks about this topic, but also creating these benchmarks so that people are incentivized to start making these these changes. Because there's not just some central, I thought, oh, we're in the APA now. And so we clearly are just going to be able to require everyone to, uh, you know, support consensual non-monogamy or add it to their demographic forms, et cetera. But it, it doesn't work that way. It's much more decentralized. It's much more individual. And so, you know, it's, it's learning and understanding the systems of power and working within them to try to add for change. And it takes very dedicated people like you <laughs> to try and effectuate <laughs> that kind of change. Thank you. So since you're a therapist and you work with a lot of clients who are engaged in polyamory or other forms of consensual non-monogamy, what are some common issues that come up? Things that you see that become trouble areas or that people just kind of have a hard time figuring out on their own? Yeah, yeah. I guess the first one that comes up for me, and it's a little bit controversial maybe, is that I see a lot of people that come in that feel like they're not meeting the ideal standard for being polyamorous and they're trying to pursue this non-hierarchical polyamorous relationship, right? Where essentially uh, all partners are valued equally and that seems to put a lot of pressure on people to be further along from where they are and they experience a lot of internal guilt or a lot of pressure and so... To me, I think that in some ways, you know, some of the early books and some of the early literature that we had around non-monogamy, and we certainly see it, yes, it, it makes sense that we want to philosophically idealize this concept of really open-hearted loving, but we're not robots. Not everyone is there. And so I think it's important that we are advocating that it's okay to have hierarchical relationships. Informed consent, again, is key, right? There's plenty of people that if you say, hey, I want to prioritize my husband or my wife or my partner that I'm married to or my partner that I've been committed to, that we honor that. And we, we are treating that as equally valuable to these non-hierarchical relationships. And I think it's also important that we pursue this, this, this concept that I, I think of as, as more practical, polyamory and really supporting people for where they are. Yeah. So again, it goes back to this idea that there isn't just one way to do polyamory. And it sounds like an issue that sometimes comes up is that people have this idealized version of it and they're trying to conform to it. And when they don't conform to that relationship ideal, it creates this discrepancy that leads to distress. And, you know, I, I think something similar can happen in monogamous relationships too, where people have this ideal in mind of what they're striving for, what their relationship should look like. And the more that we put these relationship ideas, ideals on a pedestal, the more we set ourselves up for disappointment. Right. We want to support people where they are, right? And just really be there with them, right? And, and, and really create this sense of that where you are is okay. 
Yeah. Now, I'm sure that another issue that probably comes up in the work that you do with polyamorous clients is, you know, okay, let's say I'm polyamorous and I've got relationships with partners X and Y, and then partners X and Y each have their own other partners, but I'm not involved with those partners. But let's say like partner X gets involved with partner Z and I don't like partner Z, <laughs> you know, I don't have a relationship with them. How often does this come up? You know, when your partner's partner is somebody that you're not on board with and does that create conflict and tension in basically all the other relationships? Yeah. And I think it's similar, right? That people feel this pressure to get along with their metamors and, and, and for good reason in some ways. That, sorry, can you define what a metamor oh, is? Oh, sorry. Yes. So a metamor is my partner's partner, right? So it's not somebody that I'm dating, but it's it's someone that my partner's dating. And there can be this pressure, you know, I guess one phrase that comes to mind is that relationships, I've people, heard people say relationships live and die based on relation, metamor relationships, right? And it is a big predictive factor. It's important. It makes it so much easier if everyone's getting along and we can engage in this concept of kitchen table polyamory, right? We're like, we can all come together and have a meal together and everything works out great. But that's not always the way things are. Again, like I think it's important that we have this realistic or practical conceptualization of what non-monogamy is and where we are and our attachment and our our trauma or whatever it might be. And that we're just trying to be, be flexible, that we're not putting pressure on people, that we're really attuning to what's available and really trying to create this sense of safety that it's okay if you have a separate relationship, right? It's it's most common that people actually even have their separate relationships. I think people, that when they come into it, it's like, oh, I've read this book and I need to like reach out to my metamor and have a good friendship with my metamor. But uh, no, not necessarily. I think it's a matter of like, what's available? Do you want to? Like, that can certainly help, but it's not something that I think people should be required or expected to do. That it's like you can, your partner can date them separately and that's fine, right? It's important to attune to what works well for you and what is available and what works for all of the people involved. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your advice for people who might be interested in trying polyamory or who are currently engaged in polyamory. So, so what's your best piece of advice for somebody who's, you know, curious, but has never gone down that road before? And then what would you say to somebody who is polyamorous, just in the interest of helping them maintain happy, healthy relationships? Yeah. Well, what comes to mind when you say that is, um, and, I, and I'm stealing part of this from, I think it was a study by Justin McGilsky uh, recently that talked about, you know, what are the predictive factors of healthy, non-monogamous relationships? And my own kind of interpretation or spin on that is that the triple C model, my conceptualization is a little bit different, but the main thing or one of the top predictive factors is congruence in relationship agreements. Like how much are people really consenting and do they really want to be non-monogamous? But not just that, but like there's different types of non-monogamy and how much are they really agreeing to that specific type of non-monogamy that my partner wants, right? Like there's, you can't just say that all gay people are going to get along or all trans people are going to get along. Much in the same way, you can't just say, okay, this person identifies as polyamorous and non-monogamous and like, okay, then they're going to get along or it's going to work. There are so many nuances and facets, as you mentioned, like there's so many different ways to do non-monogamy. So it's important to just really assess how aligned are we in what we are idealizing or what we really want in terms of our relationship agreements. So one thing I'm really assessing is how close are they, right? Because if there's this big 
bridge or this big gap in the individual's idealized form of non-monogamy, it's like, okay, that is going to be hard to overcome. Not impossible, right? Just like how we know with research of similarities in personality, right? People tend to get along better, but there are differences and people can bridge that gap, right? So it's important just to be attuned to that and recognize that understandably, that's going to be difficult and and not privileging any certain type of non-monogamy or monogamy, right? That it, I think we also need to be careful that monogamy is not the idealized form of human relating, right? I think it also in, in different circles, polyamory can be seen or people that are monogamous can receive this like this stigma for being monogamous. And I think that, that we need to be thoughtful about recognizing that there are, is no one ideal way of doing relationships, right? So one C is the congruence and agreements. The other thing I'm looking for is communication. I think it's so important just to have some sort of a model or book that you're reading or something. I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication, but you're having something that helps you with communication, because I see a common thing that comes up is people get activated, they get stuck, they feel co-triggered, and it's hard to really hear their partner. So I'm a big fan of a lot of the, the partner's work that I do, which I think we should call it partner's work and not couple's work. That's something I'm advocating for the field to move toward. But this, this activity or this concept of taking turns where let's say you and I are, are having a stuck point or something that we're really triggered around and I think it's important to really take turns where you can either, you can even set a timer where you're really trying to understand what's the story, like what are you experiencing? And I'm really, I don't have to agree with your story, but I'm really just trying to empathize with your perspective that for 10 minutes or five minutes or 15 minutes that I'm not defending myself. I'm trying to really let go of me trying to advocate for my needs, but I'm just really trying to empathize and understand. I don't have to fix, but I'm just really trying to tune to you, your needs, your story. And then I might even say things like, what would you like to hear right now? What are the words or what would feel really good to you? So I'm really trying to attune to your story and we pause and we hear, and then we switch. And then I can kind of suspend my need to defend because oftentimes what happens in relationships is I don't feel heard. I'm not hearing you. I'm feeling this impulse to defend. I'm getting activated by what you're saying because I'm not agreeing with your story and I feel like I need to defend myself. So a lot of my work, it seems like with partners, is slowing down. And let's really try to attune to what your partner is saying and feeling. You don't have to agree with the story, but just really try to feel them and you'll get a turn shortly, right? And then the last thing is community, right? I think that is one of the challenging things with the community being so stigmatized and, 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 and we're certainly seeing progress there, but a strong predictive factor of people working through this because every relationship has challenges, right? Monogamy has challenges, but it's much more normalized. You have so much more support. So I think that's something unique, just like being queer. It's so important to have a community that can support you. Thanks for sharing all of that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and trying to change the conversations that we're having around consensual non-monogamy. And in your previous answer, you you hinted at that a little bit, you know, changing some of the standard language people always use about couples to say partners, you know, to be more inclusive of people who might have diverse relationship practices or structures. And you also talked earlier about creating a, you know, or helping people have tools to find therapists who are affirming of their relationship. So what's some of the other work that you're doing through the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy to change these conversations? Yeah. So I'll first talk broadly about the consensual non-monogamy. First of all, is through Division 44 of the American Psychological Association, the APA has around, I think it's 54 subdivisions that focus on certain topics or identities. Division 44 is the LGBT version 
of that. So the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy is a group of, a uh, diverse group of nearly 80 researchers, mental and medical health professionals, legal scholars, educators, and graduate students who all all working on projects that focus on our five different pillars. And these pillars mirror the pillars of the Division 44. So that's research, clinical practice, education, social justice, and public awareness of consensual non-monogamy. And uh, Division 44 is actually the first scientific association in the world to have what originally was a temporary task force and now a permanent committee dedicated to consensual non-monogamy. So it was a big win for us just even having, advocating for consensual non-monogamy to have a seat at the table. So now we have two, uh, Dr. Amy Moores and myself that are representatives, and now we have voting privileges and financial support to attend the meetings. So it was a big win for just us to have a seat at the table and formal recognition within the APA. In terms of projects that we've been focusing on, we have 12 strategic initiatives, uh, a few highlights within the field of research. We have these special calls we're convincing journals to conduct research on consensual non-monogamy so that incentivizes research to do research on the field, as well as just conducting a number of different studies on a bunch of different topics, such as legal issues, intersectional identities with CNM. In terms of clinical practice, we recently just produced a couple of brochures for medical and mental health professionals. Also a big win was the APA has these guidelines for psychologists in terms of their clinical practice with sexual minority persons. Amy and I drafted the first draft and it's now been accepted and edited and supported. So there's now consensual non-monogamy for the first time at the APA wide level is recognized and psychologists are encouraged to be supportive and mindful of consensual non-monogamy relationships. So that was a big win for us. And also another thing in terms of clinical practices, demographic forms. I've talked about that. We have to if we don't research a topic, if we don't include in demographic forms routinely, we don't have data and we can't make substantial change if we don't have data. So we created this guide on how to ask about ethical non-monogamy on your intake forms, both uh, printer for, for clinicians. In terms of education, we're creating an open access database for, let's say you're a uh, psychologist in Nebraska and you want to teach about CNM, but you're not updated on the research, you can download our resources for free and and do a PowerPoint on consensual non-monogamy. In terms of social justice, we're doing a lot of work, I already mentioned, with the psychologist locator and psychology today and just trying to also create a resolution within the APA. In terms of public awareness, we created a general fact for the public, but also we have a newsletter that we're creating and we have a whole communications team that's helping us put the word out about non-monogamy. Sounds like a lot going on (laughs) all at once. Uh An ambitious project for sure. And, you know, you mentioned as part of that, that you're, you know, pushing for more research, especially that, that explores some legal issues and other factors. And so that brings me to my last question, which is really about the future of consensual non-monogamy and polyamory. We've seen that there's been this push for legal recognition of polyamorous relationships in recent years. And there are some who have argued that the next frontier in the civil rights movement is going to be about consensual non-monogamy to some degree. And we've seen recently a couple of cities in the United States, both in the state of Massachusetts, that have worked to create legal structures for domestic partnerships for people who are polyamorous, so people who have more than one other partner. So can you tell us a little bit about what you think the legal landscape is going to look like going forward for polyamorous relationships or where where are things headed there? Yeah, great question. 
Yeah, we're really excited. And this is a lot of the work that I'm doing with uh, Plaque or the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition and this collaboration of Harvard Law's LGBT Advocacy Clinic, as well as um, the Chosen Family Law Center. So really excited because this is the first time anything like this has come together, right? With having people with maybe this much uh, social capital and institutional power coming together to organize to support polyamorous legislation. Um, so we came together and, the, and the, really the spark was um, in Somerville, Massachusetts, which I believe was the first city to pass gay domestic partnerships as well. So it's interesting. I think then it was Cambridge. So I think that if my history facts are correct, polyamory is following that same trend that gay marriage was um, or queer marriage was was following and that these cities were first. And then the city of Arlington now joined the ranks where they passed, they were first the first to pass plural domestic partnerships or polyamorous domestic partnerships, essentially so that it's okay for more than one person. So if you and I are in a domestic partnership, we could also legally recognize our relationship with our other partner if we had another partner, right? So that is one primary focus and efforts or strategy is to focus more on the local level. So working within cities. The other topic is anti-discrimination. A number of people are being fired from their jobs right now um, or demoted or not getting promotion. And so one thing that we're seeing to advocate for is to have non-monogamy added as a anti-discrimination ordinance. And so different cities are pursuing them individually or pursuing them together. And really what Plaque does is once a city is at a place where there's social support on a city council, we will then work with that city council. We'll look at their specific laws and the lawyers on our team will make specific red line or recommendations about what makes the most sense or what strategy the local advocates want to take in advancing those ordinances. So something that you mentioned there that I think will be surprising to some people is that you said that there's discrimination taking place against some people who are polyamorous where they might lose their job because of their relationship structure or orientation. So do you have any examples you can share of that or can you just tell us kind of, you know, what's the reasoning there? Is it because people are perceiving polyamory as immoral or, you know, not consistent with their values? And is that why some people are being let go? What, what's going on there? Great question. And I think that one, it's important to note that the, the polyamory community is not being discriminated to the same degree. People aren't being killed. People aren't being oppressed in the, to the same degree that the trans and the queer community are. So it's important to note that and just pause, right? Acknowledge the privilege that the CNM community has. I think it's important to start with that. And we're learning more that there is clear forms of discrimination that the the non-monogamy community is experiencing. And a lot of it, there are similar parallels or points of congruence. And even what led us to being able to be included within Division 44 is, you know, I put together a presentation and we had enough uh, research that was out. So I was able to, Amy and I were able, and, and Dr. Michelle Vaughn were able to articulate the parallels, right? And some of those are coming out concerns, difficulty legally recognizing and protecting families, so such as adoption, marriage rights, child custody discrimination, healthcare discrimination, access to health insurance, bereavement and family leave, right? When you can't formally recognize your relationships, housing and workplace discrimination, it's not protected status, right? So you don't, you can deny someone access to housing or you can fire them or demote them based on, and there's stories that we've heard. We just had this um, multiple people. I'm thinking of this nurse who was just demoted or asked to transfer because she came out or one of her colleagues was concerned about her being polyamorous 
there's many examples of child custody cases, right? So let's say there's a divorce and the fellow spouse or even a grandparent hears that you're non-monogamous and perceives that it's not healthy or safe for your child. There's no research to suggest that it's not. Children are doing just as well in polyamorous families. If anything, there's more support and resources to support children. It takes a village, right? But that still exists. We also know there's minority stress and Amy Moores and Rhonda, as you mentioned, and uh, Dr. Sharon Flicker, we just published this first internalized CNM negativity paper. It's very similar to how uh, what was called internalized homophobia or this, this concept that because of societal stigma, folks who are queer or trans are now, we're finding, we just coined that term or that concept for the non-monogamy community, that we find that that people perceive societal stigma and think negative things about themselves. And that has, is, is related to negative relationship and, and mental health outcomes, right? We also know there's STI stigma, difficulty obtaining professional and social support, right? So there's all sorts of evidence that there is stigma and discrimination. And we're just starting to recognize that and communicate about that because there's a perception of like, oh, are they really stigmatized or do we really need to to support this community or not? So we're in the early stages. We're moving from this denial and rejection phase of our development of acceptance and recognition and acceptance is starting to happen. And I think you've made the case for why you're doing all the advocacy work that you're doing, right? And why it's important and how there's still a lot that we need to know and learn through research, that there's still a lot that therapists and physicians need to know through education. And so it will be fascinating to see what happens going forward, especially as societal attitudes toward polyamory and consensual non-monogamy continue to evolve. So thanks so much for this amazing conversation, Heath. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work? Sure. They can go to my website. Um, it's just Dr. Heath Schreckinger. I imagine you'll have a link because that name is hard <laughs> to spell. But I've got a, a number of resources on my website to find me. And as I mentioned, yes, uh, also have a private practice and, and do see people and also consult and support people in their work. If folks are experiencing stigma or discrimination and want to share their stories, we're also in the process of collecting stories and having a, a centralized place that people can go because part of the work moving forward in terms of having conversation with legislators or city council persons is also seeing that this is impacting people's lives. And so certainly want to invite people to go to polyamorylegal.org and you can find a plaque. There's also a link to plaque on my website as well, where you can go to the contact us section of that website and you can share your story with us. Great. Thank you. And I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.